Good evening, guys. It's uh, this is one you know one of my favorite. I get usually do this a couple times a year, so two of my favorite nights of the year are the opportunity to bring the word on a Thursday night. I, I love the opportunity to fellowship with you guys here during the the times that we get to meet in the fall and the spring. But then the opportunity to come up here and, and deliver God's word is always a a humbling opportunity, a, a grateful opportunity, and so I'm always appreciative of that. And I love the topic we get to talk about tonight because, you know, it's uh, talking about leadership and talking about an unexpected leader. You know, we're talking about how God makes men. And so, I mean, you can't talk about men without leadership. I mean, it, it's, that's like peanut butter and jelly, and you can't, you can't talk about one without the other. So I'm excited to talk about unexpected leaders tonight. You know, one of the things that I love uh, the most is a good, old-fashioned, nobody-to-somebody kind of story. Kind of like a a no-name that gets the opportunity to step up to the plate and excel. You know, and I think, you know, you may be or may not be a sports person. Uh, I certainly, you you can tell Bruce is. Bruce loves giving sports analogies. I like sports analogies. I'm a sports guy. We're we're both passionate about that. And whether or not you're a sports person or not, you can't deny how the drama of sports plays out on the football field, on the baseball diamond, on the hardwood. It is the, it is the perfect scenario where you see people who all the odds stacked against them, nobody believes in them, yet in the spirit of competition, they rise up against all that opposition and do something far beyond what anybody would expect. To excel. To go beyond the moment. To be bigger than the moment. I mean, look at, look at where we're at right now. Everyone in here has got a busted bracket. You can't lie to me if you don't. And we're sitting here two, two days away from the most unthinkable final four. You got a number nine. A number, uh, what, a, two number fives and a number four. You may have had UConn. You may have. But nobody had Florida Atlantic. You can't tell me that. This is how sports gives you this opportunity where, where the no-name gets the opportunity to step up and excel and to shine. And, and one of my favorite kind of nobody stories to somebody stories is, is by a guy, a guy by the name of Kurt Warner. Kurt Warner, for those who know him or don't know him, he's a quarterback who started his illustrious career at the collegiate powerhouse of Northern Iowa. Now, I'll buy somebody here coffee if you can tell me what the mascot of Northern Iowa is. Good. It's a panther. I was hoping not not to have to buy coffee, but I'll buy you one anyway. It's a panther, because look, we all know Northern Iowa, right? And Warner was so good in college that he didn't even get to start until his senior year. He played one year. Rode the bench up into the first three years. So he has a decent first or senior season, so much so that he had the expectations that he thought, well, I'm going to get drafted. By the way, I recommend for a good family movie, see the underdog story. It's a really good, good wholesome family movie. Recommend it. But he's thinking he's going to get drafted, and guess what? He doesn't. So he signs as a, a rookie free agent with the Green Bay Packers, and, you know, he's kind of in a tough spot because at the time they've got a guy by the name of Brett Favre. We've all heard of Brett Favre. They've got a decent backup by the name of Ty Detmer, and he's coming in hoping to latch on as a third string, and he plays some of the preseason and he ends up getting cut. 
And so what does he do? He doesn't get any more offers. So he goes home, goes back to Iowa, and he finds himself stocking shelves in a grocery store. He had found a woman that he loved. There was kind of a a blended family, and he's trying to provide, and he's stocking shelves in a grocery store. And then all of a sudden, this, this league pops up, the arena football league, kind of like the minors of the minors of the minors, But he's going to get a paycheck to go play football. It's what he wants. So he goes and plays football for the Arena League for a couple years. And he excels. He kind of becomes the face of the league. So much so that he gets back to the NFL. And he actually, what most people don't know, is he actually gets a season with the St. Louis Rams as their third string quarterback. He got to throw 11 passes. But then, and that was 1997, moving to 1998, they designate him over to NFL Europe, which actually was kind of at the time the minor leagues. And he's a backup in NFL Europe. So he's still not really getting to play. He comes back in 1999, and he gets designated by the Rams for the expansion draft. Because there was this team in 1999 that was starting up and looking for players. Anybody remember who that was? Yeah, the Browns. And the Browns passed on Warner. So Warner now goes back to the Rams, and now he is the backup. He finds his way, at least in the position of backup, behind Trent Green, who was locked in as the starter. And Trent Green, in the first preseason game of the 1990 season, goes back for a pass. He launches it, and as he does, somebody comes in and takes his knee right out. Gone for the year. And guess what? All that waiting, all that work, all that, now the spotlight turns to Kurt Warner and he has to step up. Now, any, anybody knows that when the backup gets put in, the, the expectations immediately come down. They don't elevate. You can't expect the backup to do what the starter does. You're kind of setting yourself for failure if you do. So, But Warner comes in, and what does he proceed to do in the 1999 NFL season but have one of the best seasons in the history of the league? The Rams' offense was known as the greatest show on turf. Proceeds to put up more yards, more touchdowns, more points than anyone. Warner is the NFL MVP. Takes the Rams to the Super Bowl. They win the Super Bowl. He's the Super Bowl MVP. And it ultimately leads to an NFL career that finds itself finalized with a bust and a gold jacket in Canton, Ohio pretty cool story you can't make that stuff up pivotal moments pivotal moments those times when we least expect it but yet the bell rings and our name is called that was what Warner faced for his team his team was in need they were void of something a leader and he stepped up And tonight in our story, we're going to see about another leader. Another leader at a pivotal time in the nation of Israel, where Israel absolutely needed someone to lead them. God calls a nobody, a nobody of nobodies, as we'll see. So our our story takes place in the book of Judges. And if you've ever spent time in the book of Judges, it's really easy to define it, summarize it. Judges 21, 25, the very last verse of the book says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was the wild, wild west. 
You had a period of 350 years, 350 years in the history of Israel, defined by a cyclical pattern of rebellion against God, Israel then being oppressed, and then Israel crying out to God, and then God delivering them with a judge, and then guess what? They go right back to it again, and the pattern would continue to repeat over 350 years. And during that time, God called 12 judges. The name judge is a fitting one, because in Hebrew, it can also be used to mean deliverer or savior. But he called 12 unique individuals, all really nobodies, to go and do something impossible, something unexpected, that only they could do through the power of God and God alone. And so tonight, we're going to be looking at one of those nobodies, probably again, like I said, nobody of nobodies, by the name of Gideon. So if you've got your Bible, chapter 6 in the book of Judges is where we're going to start. I want you to put your thumb there. We're going to do something a little bit different tonight because I want our minds primed on this topic of leadership. I want us thinking about leadership as we go into the lesson and are learning about it. So we're actually going to get into our questions now. We're going to get into our questions now. So you've got, let's take about five, six minutes because we've got a lot of ground to cover, a lot of good stuff to look at tonight. But I want us to look at the questions. First off, are leaders born or made? Secondly, give a positive or negative example of leadership in your life. And thirdly, how have you responded when called to do something you were totally inadequate to do? Let's take about five, six minutes, and then we'll get into the lesson. All right, let's go ahead and start bringing it back in a little bit. I like what I heard. I, that first question gets everybody stirring a little bit. There's a lot of debate on that one. I like it. I like it. That was the purpose of it. It's a great, uh, great thing to think of. Well, if you've got your Bible, we're going to go ahead now and get into the text, into Judges chapter 6. We're going we're gonna to set the stage, kind of lay the background of, of our story tonight in the first 10 verses. So if you're there, before we go ahead and do so, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. And then we'll go ahead and get in the word. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for the opportunity to open up your word. We thank you for the sacred writ, Lord God. And we just thank you for what it means and does for our lives. Lord, I just pray tonight that as we go through it, that God, you would be honored. And that, Lord, you would speak to us clearly through me, Lord God. And uh, that, Father, that your will would certainly be done in this place as we seek to be challenged in the, the topic of leadership. Lord, help us to see what you've called us for, called us to do, and, and how, Lord God, you can make us to be more godly men in your image, God. Bless us now, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Judges chapter 6, verses 1, it says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains and the caves and strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels not to be counted, so they laid waste the land as they came in. 
And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. I want us to see the condition of Israel. First off, they did evil. Right in the first verse, it says that they did evil before the Lord. And it says right there in the second verse that the Lord gave Midian power over Israel. That the Lord gave control to the Midianites over Israel. This is a key point. And I, this is a very, very crucial point in our story tonight. As you study and see how it's wove throughout scripture, as you see, as you look and live your life on a daily basis, this points clearly to one thing and one thing only, the sovereignty of God. And you hear that word used a lot, the sovereignty of God. And I think most of us say, yeah, God is sovereign. Sure, God is sovereign. God is sovereign until we bump up against it. And our wills now bump up against God's will. Because what God's sovereignty means is not only that God is on the throne, but while God is on the throne, he is in control and he rules and he reigns. When we talk about God's sovereign will, we're talking about God's will for all of our lives, for all of creation, everything that he's done, and that it's perfect and it will be filled exactly as God has designed. But we like to question that in our fallen nature at times. We like to to push up against that at times, thinking that, no, 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 I know what's best. I believe God's sovereign, but in this situation, I know what's best. Notice here that the Midianites did not defeat Israel. That's, That's what I want you to see. That God is the one who gave Israel over to the Midianites. Because he is the one who's in control. And as we see tonight, as we talk about leadership and the expectations of leadership in our life, and we talk about the topic of an unexpected leader, that the reality is, is that when God calls us to lead, we'll see that he's with us and he'll fulfill his will through us if we surrender to that sovereignty. But we see that God gave the Israelites over to Midian. Who are the Midianites? Well, Mike talked about Moses last week, did a great job with it. He mentioned at one point that Moses' father-in-law was a Midianite. Well, Midian was actually a son of Abraham through another woman after Sarah died. So actually, Isaac and Midian, and they were related. They're half-brothers. And they got along for several years until you get up into around Numbers 23, 24, 25. This is the story of Balaam and the talking donkey. Balak, the, the, the prophet that was called to go and prophesy against Israel. And here Midian joins up with Moab. And here is where God professes that Midian is now an enemy of God and God's people. And here we see, you know, centuries later now that, that the people of God are now being oppressed by their enemy. 
that they're living in dens and caves, that it says like locusts, they would come up and they would just take their crop and take their livestock. The Israelites didn't stand a chance, and so what do they do? They know that they, they, can't, they can't do it on their own. They've got to cry out, and they cry out to God. And God doesn't immediately send the judge. He sends a prophet their way. He sends the prophet to him, and the prophet first off points to the fact that, look, I am the same God who brought you out of Egypt. Now, we read that, and we know there's significance to that, We accept that by faith, and we know how that that impacted the nation of Israel by reading it. But when you are Israel at that time, only a few centuries removed from that, only a few generations removed from that, as they're being brought up and being taught this, this was a big deal for them. The prophet is reminding them of something that their grandfather's 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 experienced. And so this is something that for them was significant. The prophet reminds them of the work that God did, but the prophet also says this, but you have not obeyed my voice. You have not obeyed my voice. So this is the the setting. This is where Israel is at. This is that pivotal moment that I was talking about at the beginning where someone needs to step up. And this is where we're going to run into our unexpected leader. But the first thing I want us to see is that he's a reluctant leader. The first thing I want us to see is is a reluctant leader. In Judges chapter 6, 11, verse 15, continue on in the text, it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all the wondrous deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So I gave you that question. Is a leader born or is a leader made? And the answer is yes. You may not like that answer, but the answer is yes. I want us to understand something. Going back to this topic of the sovereignty of God. I love the passage, Ephesians 2.10, that speaks of the fact that God, before all of us were even around. It says we are his craftsmanship, his workmanship. That word goes into meaning masterpiece. But it goes further to say that God, before all of that, before he even made his masterpiece, he prepared the works for them to walk in. That through those works, he would get glory. That he prepared good works before all of that, so that we would walk in them and he would get the glory. 
This speaks of God's predestination. That for God's elect, before we were fashioned in the womb, God has prepared us to glorify him. And scripture is clear. This is why I love being in a room with men. Scripture is clear on the role of male leadership. It's all throughout scripture. Starting with the Godhead itself. I don't know if it was because I've been being in preparation for this. In this very point, in this very topic, but I've seen multiple instances this week where people have used different pronouns to describe God on social media. I actually had an interaction with one person who called the Holy Spirit a she, and I said, why would you blaspheme the Lord that way? Well, the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit's a spirit. It doesn't have a, an identity, a body, or anything. So we, I said, come on now. Scripture's clear. Scripture is clear. We just, I just saw a video today of someone, a man dressed as a woman, and we'll leave it at that, calling God a she on mainstream media. This is, it wasn't some just kind of loon just punching something in social media. This was on the news because this is the hot button topic right now after Nashville. And so people are out there talking about it. And, and so we see somebody calling God a she. God is a man. God is he, he is the father, he is the son, he is the Holy Spirit. And it's not because some author of scripture wrote it that way, because if we understand the inspiration of scripture, we understand that God breathed it, that it is God's way of identifying himself. Not the way that we define it, but how God defines himself. And so we see this in the scripture. And from the Godhead, then God gives us the institutions of family, and of church, and of government. And we see the role of the biblical patriarchy, the role of male leadership in the home. We see the responsibility of that in Scripture. We see the role of that. We see that under attack today. And it's been under attack for decades. Because where there is male leadership voids in the family, the family unit breaks down. When we don't step up, the family unit breaks down. But we could go even further then into the role of the church, the bishop, the elder, the overseer, the pastor. And we see the attacks even in evangelical movements today of egalitarianism that says that, you know what? Women and men, we should be on the equal playing field in terms of our, our roles. No, God defines the roles. And while scripture clearly says that a woman should not exercise authority over a man in church, we see men bowing down to and allowing women to exercise the role of, of pastor. That we have now come to the point where we are redefining words and redefining terms in churches that claim inerrancy of scripture, but at the same time are denying it. Because God has called men to lead in his church. We see the role of government. That, that at the time, it was a theocracy. God reigned, but Israel complained and said they wanted a king. So God gave him a king. He didn't give him a king, queen. He didn't give him a princess. He gave him a king. And throughout the history of the nation of Israel, in any major nation, we've seen the role of male leadership. Because this is the way it was designed by the perfect designer. And from that, I want us to understand this point, and I'll probably repeat it about 50 times, is that godly men are called to lead. Godly men are called to lead. 
If you have breath in your lungs and you have repented of your sins and you believe in Christ Jesus as Lord, you are called to lead. But unbelief, doubt, fears, circumstances, all of the above lead to reluctancy. Lead to men and have led men to miss the mark and miss the goal and miss the call that God has for their life. It's not unprecedented. We see it in scripture. We, see, we saw it last week in Moses. While Moses was humbled at the same time, he was reluctant. He pushed back to the point where he even said, send someone else. We see it in Jonah, who God called to go and preach the message of hope to the Ninevites. And he rebelled against God because he hated the Ninevites. We see it in Judges chapter 4 with Barak, who God said, go out and lead my nation against Sisera and defeat that army. And he says, I will only go if Deborah goes with me. And God says, from that, you will not get the glory, but a woman will. And a woman who wasn't even an Israelite is the one who ultimately killed Sisera. So it's not unprecedented, this, this reluctancy. And we see, picking back up in the verse, we see Gideon, our reluctant leader tonight, visited by the angel of the Lord, who is no, other, no one other than Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. We see that in verse 14, verse 16, and ultimately in verse 22, when he reveals it to Gideon himself. And where do we find Gideon at the time that the Lord shows up to him? He's beating out wheat in a wine press. Now, guys, we don't, we don't have to be rocket scientists to know you. Wheat, wine, wheat, wine, two different things. Why is he in the wine press? Well, a, a, a wheat is typically beat out on a threshing floor, which was a hard surface. It was out in the open. And you would beat the wheat until the, the usable parts were there, and then you threw the rest away. But it was out in the open. He could be ransacked, he could be raided, so he's hiding in a wine press, which was buried down in the ground, and it says the Lord found him under a terebinth tree. So somehow Gideon found a, a wine press that was hiding him under a tree at the same time. And look how the Lord approaches him. He finds his unexpected leader hiding from the Midianites, and he says to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, if you've heard that expression, hey, that just went right over my head, this is one of those moments, because look at what Gideon says. He doesn't even acknowledge that. I mean, he, hasn't, he doesn't even acknowledge the fact that this is the pre-incarnate Christ, that this is the angel of the Lord. He says, he says please, sir, if, if the Lord, now he's talking about God to God and doesn't even realize it. He says, please, Lord, if the Lord is with us, why this, is this happening to us? And he proceeds to talk about, hey, where, where's all these miracles that happened for, that we were told about growing up about Egypt? And look what he says, but now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. I don't know if this was going on simultaneous to the prophet's message, but he obviously didn't get it. He was missing something there. And the Lord, the Lord never has to justify himself to us. 
And so he blows right past Gideon's complaint. And what he does is recommission him and confirm the fact in verse 14 that he is called to go out and deliver the people of Israel from the Midianites and that he will go in the power of the Lord. Now I want to pause for a moment. I want to, I want to now turn this back internally. I want to have this kind of looking man in the mirror moment for us. The, the idea of me saying that godly men are called to lead, that means you. That means me. You might be sitting there going, I don't know about that. I'm not sure about that. You might have that sense of feeling a little overwhelmed. You might have a little bit of anxiety when you think about this idea of leadership. You might feel like, I'm not even, I'm not equipped for that. What are you talking about? I mean, look at what Gideon said in verse, verse 15 about himself. Look, I'm from the, the smallest clan, and I'm the, I'm the lowest of the lowest from the, from the smallest clan. That's why I said at the beginning, he's the nobody of the nobodies. And so you might be sitting there going, I'm not equipped to lead. I, what are you talking about? I'm not a leader. Yeah, you are. Regardless of you like it or not, regardless of your circumstances, you are called to lead. Now, I want to, I want to make a, a distinguishment between leadership and influence, though. There's a difference between leadership and influence, and it's an important one as we define leadership. And when I say you're a leader, you'll understand what the distinct difference is. I mean, look, all you have to do is look at your kids, your grandkids, look at somebody, billions of people going on TikTok and Instagram and, and YouTube and all of this stuff. And they're being influenced. And you might go, well, I don't, I don't even know what TikTok is. I don't know what this is. I don't want, you need to know. I'm not saying you need to subscribe to it. I'm not saying you need to go on it. But let's not bury our heads in the sand. Know what, know what the world is trying to do. And it's influencing people in a negative sense. There's no accountability, no, no, no interaction there, no end game, no thought to it. But yet they're making an impact in people's lives. On the flip side of that, influence can be good as well. I'm not saying it's all bad. We've probably all experienced a time or two where God has brought someone in our life for a short period where we're able to kind of build into their life a little bit, encourage them a little bit, and the next thing you know, they're off doing something else. But that's not leadership. That's influence. So it can go either way. Leadership's something different. Leadership is specific Leadership has an end game in mind. Leadership has something it's moving towards. Leadership has a goal. Leadership, leaders know who they are, where they're going, and who's following them. That's leadership. And now you guys are still thinking, that's definitely not me. What is he talking about? Understand this. You can have influence without leadership, but you cannot have leadership and not have influence. If you're, if you're a leader, which you are, you have to have influence. Now, to get to the point of why I'm saying that all godly men are leaders, look, God has put us in specific positions in our life, particularly in, in a, few instant, a few specific circumstances. Number one, our role as husbands. Our role as husbands 
As godly men were to be leading our spouses. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, 23, 25 through 33. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife. That's not influence. That's leadership. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself with splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Down to verse 33. Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We are called to lead our spouses. We're called to lead our children. Ephesians chapter 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Go down to verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's not influence. That's leadership. And let me push on you a little bit on this last point, that we are called to be leaders in one another's lives. We may not lead, I'm not saying we need to lead each other, but when I look at Matthew 28 and I look at the gospel, or the the Great Commission, to go therefore into all the world in making disciples of the nations, in baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all the things that Jesus had taught us, or taught his disciples, And that he is with us, even to the end of the age. This is a call out to men and to all the Christians. But I'm saying to men tonight, that we are called to go out and lead the charge of the gospel. Lead the charge of discipling one another. Absolutely we are. And if Bogren was here tonight, he'd be saying amen. We're called to lead in these areas. This is elementary stuff. This is foundational stuff. Yes, God calls different people for specific things. Not everybody's called to be a pastor. Not everybody's called to be the the boss on the job. Not everybody's called to be the, the leader in the community. Those are specific callings. But at its very core, at the institutions that God gave us, particularly the family, we are called to lead. And there is a void of leadership There's a void of leadership in men today, particularly godly men. We need to step up to the plate. It's not just the jobs of the pastors, the deacons, the elders, the ABF leaders. If you have a wife tonight, if you have a wife tonight, are you reading God's word with her? Are you praying with her? Are you building into her spiritually? Are you encouraging her? Are you loving her the way that Christ loves the church? If you have children tonight, are you holding them accountable? Are you bringing forth God's word and disciplining them and instructing them in the way that they should go? And you might say, well, I'm off the hook. I don't have either. Well, I can tell you there's men in here tonight that need to know Jesus Christ. And there's men in here tonight who know Jesus Christ who need to grow in their faith who need to grow in their faith, who, and I'll tell you guys, I'm putting it out there. If you want discipled, come see me. 
I'll get hooked up with Pastor Steve and we'll, we'll figure something. There's good men out here that can disciple you. But we need to grow in our faith as men so we can lead more effectively. When our reluctancy is based on doubts, when it's based on our uh, failures, on fear of failures, I should say, doubting ourselves, circumstances, all of those things that we are, like to use as excuses, we are missing God's best. And it's not just God's best for us. It's God's best for the ones that we love. If we say we love our wives, how can we not pray with them and water them with the word and cleanse them with the word and encourage them? So my challenge to you this is this. First challenge is this. All godly men are called to lead. Who are you leading? Who are you leading? Are you leading your spouse? Are you leading your, your family? Are you investing in someone in the church? Another man's life. It's a long first point. I promise the last two won't be as long, but this is an important one. Yeah, we're unexpected leaders. Nobody expected to come in here tonight and have some guy stand up here and say, you know what, you're a leader. To that end, we're, it's a little unexpected. But it's God's call. It's God's design. It's God's plan. The great thing about God is God doesn't give us a plan without giving us his own example. And so we see leadership exemplified in verses, or chapter 6, verses 16 through 27, 36 through 40, seven, uh, chapter 7, 9 through 15. We're not going to read all that. We don't have time. But we are going to go through it. Just go through the highlights. As Gideon is wavering, he's still doubting, he's still reluctant. The Lord, we know, is constant. He reiterates the mission, he reiterates the outcome, he reiterates who power he's going in. And through this, God gives us three principles of leadership tonight that are meant to encourage us and things that we can also turn around and apply to our lives as we seek to lead those whom God has called us to lead. The first thing I want to see is the principle of empowerment. The principle of empowerment. Chapter 6, verse 16. It says this. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Now what is empowerment? Empowerment is giving someone, I should say someone with authority, giving someone who doesn't have authority, the authority to go do something. In this case, God is the one who has all authority and he is the one who calls Gideon out and gives him the authority to go in his name and go and defeat the Midianites. As we said, God is sovereign. He calls who he wants and he will be there to empower and serve, uh, to stand alongside them as they go about serving his will. This should be an encouragement to us that God is the one that empowers us in this call. So as you doubt, as you, are, as you fear, as you have anxiety about this idea of leadership, maybe you have conviction about this leadership, maybe this is affirmation about leadership and you're already doing very well at it, regardless, understand that God is the one empowering you to do it. And if you're trying to operate in your own strength, you're missing the point. You're trying to run against the wind. So we have the principle of empowerment that God is the one that's calling us. God is the one that's empowering us. But we also then have the principle of presence. This idea of being there. As Gideon continues to doubt, 
We see him go to God with, with his, something that's not as uncommon as you think where someone is saying, God, please show me something. God, please confirm this for me. God, I'm uncertain. God, I'm unsure. Please give me a sign. And he asked God for a sign. The first thing, we see three instances where God reveals himself. The first one is in verses 19 through 24, where Gideon brings out and he puts an offering down, a food offering down on the rock, and God consumes it up with fire immediately. And that's when, in verse 22, where Gideon is now realizing this is God. And he's, he's taken back by this. Which leads us then to something that we're more familiar with, which is the, the test of the fleece, right? You may, if you know this story, you've heard of the fleece. If you haven't, well, what it is, is Gideon's got this wool fleece and he says, God, well, if you've called me to go, then what, I, what am I asking you to do is that you would allow the fleece to be wet, but the ground around it to be dry. And he goes to bed and he wakes up and the fleece is wet and the ground is dry. And then he comes back and says, well, Lord, okay, you know, please don't let your anger burn against me. Please be patient with me. I'm going to do it one more time. Now, God, let's do the opposite. I want the fleece to be dry, but I want the ground to be wet. And that will confirm that you've called me. And God graciously provides that for him. But even still, there's a little bit of uncertainty. And we see later down the road, even after the army has been established, Gideon now God provides him one last confirmation that I'm here for you. And Gideon is privileged to hear two Midianites talking about a dream. One had a dream and and the other one starts to interpret it for him. And ultimately the interpretation of the dream was God is sending Gideon to defeat us. And Gideon got to hear it and he goes back immediately to the camp in the evening and he says, God has given us the victory. Finally, finally he's got that confidence. Finally he's certain that God is with us. Guys, I'm telling you tonight, we don't need a wet fleece. We don't need a dry ground. We don't need uh, an offering to be burnt up. We don't need a dream interpreted. God is in us. He's with us. We are not alone in this. We have the sufficiency of his written word. We have his spirit in us. We are not alone We should be confident leaders in our homes. We should be confident leaders in our church. We should be confident leaders in our communities. We should be engaged and involved, knowing that we walk in the power and call of God Almighty. Not in our own strength. That is the principle of presence. A leader stands with those that they empower. God does not charge us to lead without being present with us. And the last thing I want us to see in this point is that the principle of progression. The principle of progression. Verses 25 through 27. Look, I want you to understand, if you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking, I'm not equipped to lead, this point's for you. Because, look, you can't eat an elephant in one bite. You ever heard that saying before? You can't eat an elephant in one bite. And God does something pretty amazing in these three little verses Before God ever sends Gideon out to go and fight the big battle, he sends him to do a small task. He says, hey, I want you to go out in your town and I want you to tear down the the idol uh, to, to Baal there. I want you to tear it down. And Gideon, you know what he does? You can go back and check in the text. He goes out and he gets 10 men. Now, how cool is that? He actually starts his leadership training, leadership process immediately. He goes out and finds 10 guys to help him. And they tear down the idol. 
They obey God. Now, look, they go at night because he's like, I'm not, a, I'm not sure I'm going to go out in the middle of the day and do this just yet. But he doesn't get, he doesn't get condemned for that. He obeys God to the point that the, the, the elders in the village come out and they go, what are you doing? And he's like, look, I'm obeying God. I'm not going to apologize for this. And God commends him for that. The point being is that leaders empower at the level of maturity of their followers. It's an important point. Leaders empower at the maturity level of their followers. If too much responsibility is given to someone who's not ready for it, we see failure, anxiety, desertion, all of the above. And so tonight, if you're saying, I'm not equipped to lead, you're not, you may not be equipped to lead as another guy here, but you're still called to lead. You may not be as mature as someone else in here, but that doesn't negate you from your responsibility to grow. To pursue the Lord, pursue holiness, pursue righteousness, and to mature in your faith. Because at some point, you're going to be sitting here going, I'm here. I can remember when I was there, but I'm here now. And somebody else is going to be where you were, and you can come alongside them and build them up. That's the point. It's about building confidence. It's about, it's about preparing you. It's about building momentum and growth in your faith. So I want to I challenge you with this. All godly men are called to be led. All godly men are called to be led. Who are you following? God has given us his, given us his example. God has given us his example. Are we following God? Are we obeying God? Are we looking more like Christ? Are we looking like the world? I came across this passage not that long ago that I just, I couldn't, they couldn't leave me alone. First Peter chapter one, verses 13 all the way through 16. And he says, therefore, preparing your mind and being sober-minded, fix your hope on the grace that will be revealed to you in Christ Jesus as obedient children, as obedient children, do not, do not go back to the passions of your former ignorance. I love that. Don't go, don't go back to the passions of your former ignorance. But as the one who has called you is holy, you are to also be holy in all your conduct for as it is written you are to be holy for I am holy. Guys, we're to grow and follow the Lord in doing it. Last point, really quickly. What we're ultimately after here is a God-honoring outcome. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 25, the whole chapter. We're looking for a God-honoring outcome. And this is a great, great, I love it. Just read it. Go through it. Enjoy it because it's good stuff. I mean, look, Israel brings out 32,000 guys. We're ready for battle. God says, way too many. Any of you who are afraid, frightened, or whatever, get out. 22,000 guys left. 10,000 are left. God says, still too many. So God puts them through this practical test, whatever. I mean, there's... There's different theologians who disagree as to what it means or whatnot. All I know is that God, through that, whittled it down to 300 men. Now, if you're Gideon, this almighty man of valor, who the whole time has been reluctant, who the whole time has been doubting, and now all of a sudden he's got 300. 
100 men to go up against the Midianites who had, oh, by the way, 135,000. 450 times the number of soldiers. This was not about Gideon. Even though he's a major player in the story. This wasn't about Israel, although they are a major player in the story. God willed it all the way down there because God wanted the glory. God was going to get the glory from this battle. And he even says it in the passage there multiple times. He's like, I, I'm, there's too many. Because if I don't whittle it down, Israel's going to claim that they are the ones who did this. God said, no, no, no. I'm going to get the glory for this. And so he breaks it all the way down and it teaches us an important point that God's strength is manifested in our weakness. As we talk about leadership tonight and as we close on this topic of leadership tonight, no better point to close on than this is that God's strength is manifested in our weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10 says this, but he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. This is Paul writing. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You may be sitting here tonight thinking, look, I own a business you may sit there and think tonight, you know what? I have a ministry. Yeah. We get prideful in ministry, don't we? I have influence. I have education. I have, a, I have a bank account. I have all these things. And as quickly as we pat ourselves on the back for all these things, you will watch them burn up at the judgment seat of Christ. Because you made it about you and not about him. It is at a critical point at this time, critical point at this time, that when we go out and to lead, as we grow in confidence, as we, as we grow in all of this, that we don't forget at the very beginning is when we need to humble ourselves. Because at any point we start to take the credit, at any point we start to make it about our abilities and what we think and what our desires are, then it no longer becomes about God getting the honor and God getting the glory. But it comes just as I said in the beginning, God's sovereign will bumping against our will. And God will always win. So we need to humble ourselves. And that's our challenge. God's glory and power are manifested in our weakness. Have you humbled yourself? Have you humbled yourself? You can't lead your family right if you haven't humbled yourself in obedience to God. You can't lead in the church properly if you haven't humbled yourself in obedience to God. You can't lead anywhere effectively if we haven't humbled ourselves before God. And it starts, as Bruce mentioned at the very beginning, it starts with a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the first step of humility right there is acknowledging that you're a sinner in need of a savior and that Christ say, died on the cross and that we repent and believe in him. But from there, we are not to live this life in our own strength, in our own might, 
but to live in subjection, in willful slavery to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Obeying his will and watching him bless our lives as we do this. How have you humbled yourself? Have you humbled yourself? So it's a great topic. I hope you've been challenged. I hope you've been encouraged. If you're you're questioning tonight your role as a leader, good. Because this is a great opportunity for us to go and get on our knees before God, humble ourselves before God, and ask God how he can mold and make us into the men. I mean, this whole thing's about how God makes men, right? How God can mold and make us into leaders in these areas that he's called us to lead in. So we can see our lives blessed and him ultimately glorified. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we love you. We thank you for the challenge tonight. Lord, you took a nobody, an unexpected leader, And you allowed him to do something mighty with 300 men to defeat an army of 135,000. And through that, you were glorified. It was a process to get him there, Lord God. But ultimately, he humbled himself and obeyed. And Father, that's the challenge for us tonight. We, We too are unexpected leaders. Many of us here tonight not realizing that that this is something that we need to be actively involved in. But there are pivotal moments in our society, Lord. Pivotal moments in our our homes, Lord. Pivotal moments in our churches. Where we need to step up as men and lead. And so God, in a way, we are all unexpected leaders. And we're all dependent upon you to give us that strength. Give us that boldness to go out and do what you called us to do. Lord, help us. Forgive us. Forgive us when we're reluctant. Forgive us when we push back. Forgive us when we, when we don't just, just do what you've called us to do, but we try to, to make it about us. But God, change our hearts tonight. Change our homes tonight. Change our churches tonight. Help us lead, Lord God, and be effective male men leaders for you for your glory. We ask it in the name of Christ our Lord. And all God's men said, amen. Amen.